Outside of Houston, Texas, as the 1970s came and went, police were nowhere near solving the murders of over a dozen young women and girls. And in the 1980s, new victims were quickly being added to the roster, bringing the tally of more lifeless bodies of young girls and women found in the fields to new heights. This is part two of our three-part series about the 50 miles of desolate patches of land between Houston and Galveston that people have come to call the Texas Killing Fields. Welcome back to Crude Axe, Murder in an All Town. I'm Jen Schaefer. Just a refresher. If you drive out of Houston going south on I-45 towards Galveston, the freeway views change from that of tall skyscrapers and billboards and buildings to that of remote fields. These fields are a perfect dumping ground for serial killers. In this episode, we're going to talk about the four whose bodies were found clustered in the same area, buried in shallow graves in the Calder oil field along Calder Road in League City, Texas. So here we are. There's a little bit of graphic content, so if you are a sensitive listener, just be wary of that. And here we go. Act 1, The Victims and the Fields. The thing about bones, they, uh, they don't decompose as quickly as flesh does. They instead stick around a long while after death. People think it's the souls of the dead that haunts a place, which very well may be true. Energy exists in all forms and leaves a smear of vibrational residue at scenes where violence took place. That energy we call ghost. At those ghostly places, it is also quite possible, if you dig deep enough, you may even find bones. Bones and lies never stay buried forever. Buried bones of victims will eventually rise up to the earth to haunt their killers, as if they're whispering a lulling cry, we're not going anywhere. An average body is made up of over 200 bones, and while death is often thought of as an end of the line, while you may be gone, your body still has a long way to go. Your brain is one of the first parts of your body to break down after death. Just a few minutes after its cells collapse like the melting Arctic, other important organs then follow. Microbes then eat through your gut and escape through the rest of your body. Decomposition, it's the dance macabre of body rot. Let's talk about the four bodies found in Calder oil field. All four of them were found in advanced state of decomposition. Yet, they existed and persisted long enough to be found and those bones they found is the only way now we can find their killer. The first set of remains they discovered was that by a woman named Hedy Villarreal Phi. They call her Hedy. And it looks like it says Heidi, but upon the research that I conducted, come to find out the way that you say her name is Hedy, which is really cute. October 10th, 1983, the pretty 23-year-old cocktail waitress mysteriously vanished while walking from the home of her parents to a convenience store. She stopped at that store to use a payphone and was never seen again. Six months later, on April 4th, 1984, a woman walking her dog discovered Hedy's remains in Calder Oilfield near League City, Texas. 
the medical examiner determined that she had broken ribs and had been beaten with a club. She is believed to have died from blunt force trauma to the head. The second victim found was Laura Miller, the blonde haired blue-eyed 16-year-old who was an avid music lover. Her body was discovered by two boys riding around on dirt bikes. Her body, not far from that of Hedy's. And this is where it gets interesting. Not only were the women's remains found in the same place, but it was at the same payphone at the same local convenience store where both Hedy and Laura made their acquaintance with the devil. It was where they were both last seen at the same spot using the same exact payphone before their disappearance. The fact that both young ladies were abducted from the same place and their bodies found in the same place in similar positions says to me and many others, this is no coincidence. I believe as well as many others, including Tim Miller, Laura's dad, that the man who killed Hedy was also the man who killed Laura. Sadly, there are two more women found in the field, two more that make up the four. The other two women found in the same field were at first labeled as Jane Doe's, and they were for decades. And it wasn't until recently, in the advent of new technology, that they finally discovered who these two Janes were. And their names are Audrey Cook, who worked as a mechanic and vanished December of 1985. Her remains were found in February 1986. And Donna Prudhomme, a native of Port Arthur, Texas, Prudhomme had recently fled an abusive relationship and fallen on hard times, and her family, after not hearing from her for a while, contacted Port Arthur Police Department and reported her missing, and in October 1991, her remains were found by horseback riders. Donna's last mailing address was on Bay Area Boulevard in Clear Lake, and it's only a few miles from the abandoned Calder oil fields. So Hedy, Laura, Audrey, and Donna make up, quote, the four, the four victims found in the Calder oil field, which is just one of the Texas killing fields. The question is, could these murders be all connected to the same individual? And could there possibly be more than one predator out there who snuffed out their lives? What is it about the killing fields, these fields in particular, that make them such a perfect place for someone to get away with murder? So Calder Oil Field is tucked away, right? It's surrounded by scattered residential homes, strip centers, and trailer parks. It's a short distance from I-45, one of Houston's busiest freeways. But it's still far enough that even if a victim tried and cried their hardest, no one would hear them scream. topography and terrain is thick and overgrown with grassy tangles, it's easy to get lost in the fields. The tall trees have witnessed it all. The air as it rushes through them, shaking loose their dead leaves, whispers and snaps secrets in a language we mere humans can't understand. The energy out there is ripe, and our questions persist. How and why does this keep happening there? And this is the most important question, how do we stop it from happening again? Act two, the grand gift of discovery. 
Detectives have one of the toughest jobs that comes with the highest stakes. Human lives depend on the work they do, the work of catching killers, snagging predators before they can strike again. It instills a looming anxiety that can crush the spirit of the most seasoned detectives. I know that for a fact. I've seen that with my father, who was a homicide detective in the 1980s and 1990s. It's hard not to bring your cases home with you, and it's hard not to wear them for your family to see. So I understand that that anxiety really does exist because it's serious work, you know, dead serious. And sometimes it seems, you know, outsiders at least, look at it and they see all the unsolved cases and oftentimes they ask, are police doing enough? So in 2019, four cities, Arlington, Colleen, Lubbock, and my city, Houston, cleared 40% or less of reported homicides according to FBI statistics. That's 60% of homicide cases going unsolved. Why is that? I had to look into that to really fully understand that because there's a whole lot of things that go into it. From what I understand, there are a few issues at play. One primary challenge, of course, is balancing the need for officers on the streets with the need for detectives to investigate murders. Solving cases is a very difficult affair, and it requires dedication and tenacity, and sometimes there just isn't enough people power to give all the cases the attention that they deserve and also desperately need. And another challenge for detectives is identifying the bodies. An estimated 40,000 unidentified bodies and samples are stored in coroner's offices and medical examiner's labs all across America. It's hard to discover who committed a crime when you don't even know the person the crime was committed against. So what has been done by law enforcement to meet these problems head on? And in the latter, the answer to the question is technology. There's a search available called NAMUS, that's N-A-M-U-S, and that's a .gov website, and that provides a list of unidentified missing persons. There are cases submitted by police and medical examiners, and anyone can access the site. So if you just want to go check that out and peruse it and explore that, I went on there and did. It's very user-friendly. That's something that police have put together to help identify missing persons, and that'll help, of course, identify any remains that they find. And then also, of course, recently genetic genealogy has begun to help us with the issue. It's the same tool that they use to catch the Golden State Killer. The process uses Ancestry.com and 23andMe and things like that. And they use that technology to find relatives through DNA. And the remains of Audrey Cook, for example, and daughter Prudhomme, they spent decades in a box inside a mobile storage building in Texas City. Sadly, they sat on a shelf alongside dozens of other identified bones and cold case samples collected by the Galveston County Medical Examiner's Office. And perhaps these are even more unidentified bodies found in the killing fields like Calder. But their remains finally became identified by means of the DNA and genetic genealogy. And that finally gave family the closure they so desperately needed. And of course, I'd be remiss to not mention this. One major silver lining that has come out of the Texas Killing Field murders is what a man named Tim Miller has achieved through his grief. Tim Miller is the father of victim Laura Miller, who was only 16 when she was abducted and murdered and found in the fields. But he, through his grief, he started up Texas EquiSearch, 
a search and rescue organization dedicated to searching for missing persons. Texas EquiSearch has been involved with over 1,800 searches in approximately 42 states in the U.S., also in Aruba, Sri Lanka, Mexico, Jamaica, Dominican Republic, and Nicaragua. But their efforts have proven successful with returning over 400 missing people home to their families safely, many of which who could have ended up deceased. When it comes to the Texas killing fields, Tim Miller has also been one of the most active voices, even when it comes to naming, even investigating possible suspects. So, of course, that's the next step in this, Act 3. Without further ado, what I'd like to do is go over those suspects. These are specifically the ones that are suspects in the Calder oil field killings. Act 3, Calder oil field suspects. So, suspect number one. For a long time, many people believed that the murder of these women was at the hands of a man named Robert Abel. This is a guy who is very well known. Anyone that has studied the Texas killing fields and read about them, they come across this name. So let me tell you a little bit about him. In the 60s, Abel was a very well-known NASA engineer. He was part of a team that designed the rocket that put the Apollo astronauts into Earth's orbit. He was known as a scientific genius, so he's very smart, and he also lived in the area. And for a time, many thought that this genius could be responsible for several of the Calder oil field murders. So why was he a suspect? First off, the FBI believed he fit the psychological profile of a killer. Two of his wives admitted that Robert had a very dark and sadistic side to him. And they even told police that he was cruel to his animals and that he had a horse ranch. That he was known to beat his horses with a pipe. And I think we know out there if you're abusive to animals, it's quite possibly you're also abusive to humans and even worse. But lastly, and this is kind of a big one, his land was situated next to the Calder oil field. Remember I told you he had a horse ranch. He actually had a recreational horseback riding business. And it was in 1991. It was called Stardust Trail Rides. So it was right there in the lot next to the killing fields. And one fall afternoon, two horseback riders came across a nude body. And that was the fourth body to be discovered in the Calder oil field. And that was the body of Donna Prudhomme. So that was found by people who he took on a horseback ride. On November 12, 1993, police stormed Robert Abel's home with a search warrant. But in there, they found no evidence, none at all. No physical evidence was found connecting him to murders. His guns that he had didn't match the bullets that killed the women. I read something in a Texas Monthly article that goes extensively talks about Robert Abel this is a quote from there, and it goes like this. Yet there are problems with allegations against Abel. Not a shred of physical evidence has ever been found linking him to the four women found dumped in the oil field. No evidence has been uncovered by any police department that can connect him to the murders they have been investigating, and no witness can place him with any of the teenagers or women before they were found dead. Despite this, Tim Miller was convinced Abel was the guy responsible for years. 
He stalked him relentlessly and made his life a living hell. And it wasn't until years later, after exhausting all efforts to find anything to pin on him, that he finally let up. And Tim Miller even admitted that he was wrong. Unfortunately, the damage had already been done, though, to Robert Abel. And in 2005, he was thought to have committed suicide by driving an old golf cart onto the railroad tracks just as the train was steaming its way in. The train struck him and killed him instantly. They ruled it an accident, but many think it was something that he did to himself on purpose. What's crazy is this. After Abel died, Tim Miller received a letter at Equisearch headquarters, a note that looked like some ransom note from some movie, and it kicks off with an eerie phrase. And this is, quote, Boo, it's me you're looking for. That's how it starts. And it goes on to say, I am the silent killer with his silence broken, but my identity is still secret. Understanding who is at the fault is key. And then towards the end of it, it states, there are more bodies. And you can look up online a picture of this letter. It is super creepy, and it looks like it's straight out of a horror movie. What's most creepy here is that the police and Tim Miller never discovered who sent the letter. One thing we know for sure, though, is that it wasn't Robert Abel. But this does lead us to our second suspect. Speaking of confession letters, this is a man named Mark Roland Stallings. The reason he became a suspect was after he wrote a letter to Fort Bend County Sheriff confessing to the murders of two Houston area women 10 years ago. When following that lead, clues began surfacing in the I-45 murder. From a Houston Chronicle article about him, After lengthy interviews with Stallings, which he allegedly confessed to several other murders in the area, the Fort Bend Sheriff and the FBI contacted League City Police, who promptly issued a bench warrant in order to interview him about the multiple homicides in the Calder Road area. So, come to find out, he worked as a ranch hand out there in the fields, and he knew exactly where the bodies were and knew the property very well. He even exchanged letters to an ex-con where he confessed to the murders, a man named Jim Carroll, and he makes some interesting claims about Stallings. He states in December 2013, on a whim, he began writing Stallings, who was a suspect in the Texas killing fields, and in his letter, he confesses to murdering the woman at first labeled one of the Jane Doe's that we now know is Donna Prudhomme. He goes on to say that Sheriff Milton Wright said in an interview they knew Stallings was good for the murders because he knew details that only the killer would know. And the district attorney won't charge him because he is already serving a 489-year sentence for burglary and an attempted escape from prison. In the words of detective there, why waste tax dollars on a trial when we know he's not getting out? It's a valid question, but... I think the answer to that, of course, is closure for the families. It would be nice for them to look into him more. The more that you read about him, the more you discover this guy. He, I mean, he pretty much confesses to the murder of Donna Prudhomme. To try him and charge him of that 
we get justice for Donna first and foremost, but the uh, the family it'll it'll help them have some closure too. Of course, the problem is who to believe and what to believe. Mark Stallings has confessed and recanted a handful of times. Police have come to consider him unreliable and not worth pursuing. But regardless, Stalling is currently serving two life sentences for unrelated crimes, and he's put away forever and he cannot hurt another person. So that's a good thing. But this leads us to our last suspect, a suspect by the name of Clyde Hendrick. This is a really good one, too. The reason he's on the list is Hendrick was convicted for the July 1984 death of a woman named Ellen Ray Beeson. She was last seen alive at a League City nightclub, the Texas Moon Club. She and Hendrick were last seen leaving the bar together, and a year later, her lifeless body was found. And this is also a crazy tidbit about him before he was convicted. The Galveston County Medical Examiner declared Beeson's cause of death was indeterminable, and Hendrick was convicted only of abusing a corpse which I don't know the ins and outs of that, but it sounds really terrible. It was known that Katie Fye, who disappeared October 1983, also frequented the same bar, Texas Moon Club. And Clyde Hendrick also lived near the Millers, Laura Miller's family. A friend of Laura's even admitted that they used to buy pot from the man and Laura had actually been in his house. She could have trusted him enough to climb in his vehicle from the store slash payphone that she was on the fateful day she disappeared. But where is he now? That's the question. In October of 2021, after serving only eight short years of his sentence, Clyde Hendrick was released from the Estelle unit in Huntsville on mandatory supervision, according to the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. My belief is he did it. It seems the most plausible. It was definitely, you know, him that killed Ellen Ray Beeson. And if he took her from the Texas Moon Club, and it's a place where Heedy also went, it's a good likelihood that he also is guilty in the murder of Heedy. And if he killed Heedy, we know that Laura and Audrey were found in the same fields, in the same positions. And whoever killed Heidi also killed Laura and also killed Audrey. But, you know, in the case of Audrey Cook, who knows? It could have been Hendrick. It could have been Stalling. It could have been some other random murder. And with Donna Prudhomme, let's face it, it honestly seems like it's Mark Stalling. She is the victim he confessed to killing in 91. He had information. The way that he talked about the case is it seems like he did it. So I'm going to say of the four... Hendrick was the one to kill Haiti and Laura Miller and then possibly Audrey Cook. And then with Donna, I think it was definitely Mark Stalling. The Calder Oilfield murders leave us with a lot of questions. So many people wonder what happened to the victims found in the Calder Oilfield and leads have been explored and exhausted and movies have been produced. There was a movie called The Texas Killing Fields. I think it stars some pretty cool people, so you can check that out. I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, but I'm definitely going to now that I've been researching the Texas Killing Fields. I know Neiman from The Walking Dead's in it. He's a favorite of mine, so I'm kind of stoked to see it. But what's great is all the nonprofits that have been formed 
and all the people who are drawn to this case and want to get more exposure for this case, it just means the closer we'll find it catching who, who did this. And the family so desperately needs those answers. And Tim Miller has been working so hard to find those. And for him to have some peace and some rest into knowing who did it and then have them convicted, I think that would just be a great thing for him. At the end of the day, unfortunately, we're really no closer to the truth than we were back in 1985, 86, 1990. And the only way to get there is to dig even deeper and to never give up. Honestly, it's to listen to what the bones and scenes are whispering as truth. They're telling their tale, and they have something to say. We just have to take the time to hear them out. And again, that was the Texas Killing Fields Part 2, the 1980s, the Calder Oil Field 4. On our next episode, we're going to be discussing the 1990s, the Texas Killing Fields. There's a lot more to this story, so stay tuned and listen up to our next episode. I am Jen Schaefer, and this is Crude Axe Murder in an Oil Town with our producers, Russell Dunlap and Amy Dunlap, keeping this thing afloat. We've got some original music. My intro song is by a band called Two Star Symphony. Please feel free to go check them out. They are amazing. We're really excited about our upcoming episodes, so please tune into that, and we will see you next time. <laughs>